Welcome to the Swike Podcast, the only podcast that shares the stuff you didn't know you needed to know about jobs, careers, and life. The Swike Podcast, the stuff I wish I knew earlier. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Swike Stuff I Wish I Knew Earlier podcast. We're here with one of our new guest hosts, uh, Bruce Chang, and he comes to us with a background in kind of engineering, project management, and just wanting to share his insights with uh, some of the young professionals out there. So, uh, Bruce, if you can give us a little bit about what you're doing up uh, right now, and then we'll go back in time and what you were like as a kid. So what are you up to these days? All right. Well, Loki, thanks for having me here. So I am a senior manager of quality engineering practice at TD Bank Group. Mm -hmm. Our team focuses on developing quality engineering capabilities, test suites, automation that helps support a wide variety of capabilities for our customers around the bank. So whenever you're talking to a chatbot Mm -hmm. or whenever you are logging in and changing preferences, how, how you want to be communicated by bank, these are all the type of capabilities that comes from our team. And hopefully uh, our customers are enjoying the features that we have to offer for them. And so that's what I'm doing today, building up a team of about 30 people right now. In fact, we started off with this team with about seven people about a year and a bit ago. We're going to 40 by the end of this year. So quite a bit of growth in just a short period of time. Sounds good. So yeah, and before we get into there, let's go back in time and uh, what was Bruce like as a kid? So for those that are watching on video, then then you can see a picture of uh, the Saddle Dome in, in his background. So it seems like you grew up in, in Calgary. So what was Bruce like in, in, in Calgary? And then let, let's uh, move into kind of uh, up to present day. So, so what were you like as a kid? Early childhood memories, anything like that? Of course. Yeah. Well, I didn't fit the typical uh, Asian stereotype. Okay. I was not great at math. I was okay. <laughs> I wasn't getting straight A's either. And the plan and the progress of moving towards university was probably quite questionable for me as well. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. Uh, so I, I definitely did not live the typical stereotype and the image that a lot of people would expect from someone like myself. I was a troublemaker. I wanted to spend a lot of time playing games. I just couldn't focus on school quite as well as I wanted to, but it was, and my parents were always constantly uh, berating me or constantly trying to lecture me to focus on schooling. <laughs> Sounds good. And, and were you kind of an only child? Did you have brothers and sisters that, that influenced you your way? Or were you kind of like the black sheep of the family? <laughs> I was a bit of a black sheep. <laughs> uh, I do have sisters, two younger sisters who were much better than me at school and everything in life in general. <laughs> uh, sounds good. So as you were in, in elementary school, you're, you're playing games, you're causing trouble, uh, not really focusing on all that. And then uh, you eventually go into uh, high school. And, and yeah. in high school, did you have like more of a sense of what you wanted to do or you were still making trouble? <laughs> well, I was getting more of a sense of what I wanted to do. I think the pivotal. So in Alberta, we have junior high, which is okay. somewhere between elementary and secondary school here in Ontario. And there was this pivotal moment where in grade nine, we had to decide what courses we wanted to take. Hmm. Uh, The basic requirement to get into the type of courses one would expect to be able to get into university had a requirement of 65%. And I was barely hitting those numbers. I wanted to go above that. To me, I didn't want to worry for the rest of my life that I wouldn't be able to do these certain things because of decisions I was making at that point. And so... I knew I needed to change, but I didn't know how. 
And I looked to a lot of friends for some guidance around them because I was surrounded by friends who were smart, very, very smart. And they gave me a lot of good advice, like looking at things like a game, looking at studying like a game of how do I level up in these uh, subjects and asking for help and even be able to lean on others for guidance as well, or even studying with other people. Because something that I've learned through many, many years later, through building my own teams, is that there's a Weight Watcher model that exists. Okay. Weight Watchers is an interesting model, and no one would ever think about building teams like Weight Watchers, but it's a working model that's worked for the last 50 plus years. The idea is if you want to see success, bring two people together who have similar challenges, but yet have that passion and goal to do something and have them help one another. Just the simple fact that they're both connected to one another and answering questions or motivating one another is one of the best ways to help move people forward where they want to go. And through these models, it's actually been some of the more successful ways of helping people lose weight. And it's also one of the reasons why we use that same model in things like pair programming these days. And this is, and strangely enough, as I, as a kid, just by pure stupid lucking accident, I discovered it. And I looked <laughs> to a lot of friends to kind of figure out which ones were struggling like me and how we can help study with one another. And that's something that kind of helped me get going a little bit. Sounds so good. that's how I pivoted from focusing so much about playing games, not focusing about school being fearful that I wasn't going to get anywhere once school was done and be able to see things from a different perspective to get where I needed to get to in high school. Sounds good. So, so you improved your, your study habits and presumably your academics and then ended up taking some of these courses. And what are some of the courses that you took? And, and then I think you ultimately ended up in, in engineering. So what yeah. was that, that uh, process like? So that was, so high school, not so much excitement there once I got through it all. And once (laughs) I had this working model that got me into university, I think university was interesting where uh, when I got there, I needed a new model. And the reason for that was my grades started to fall back to where they used to be when I was in junior high and even elementary school. In fact, by the time I got to third year, I actually received five F's. Oh, no. that year, I nearly got kicked out of school. My GPA that year was 1.73 and the kickout grade was 1.7. <laughs> so again, that came back to a moment where I had to really rediscover myself and try to figure out what's, what was going to work and what isn't working for me at that point. And something I had uncovered was that it was stress is a real thing. When we're stressful, we think we're performing. We think we're, if we stay up that extra one or two hours, or if we think that we do X, Y, Z, we'll, we'll get ourselves out of it. But under stress, it's very difficult to remember things. It's very, we're not always thinking clearly either. And unfortunately, through all of that, I was burning myself out. I was going to all these exams with 75%, and I came out with Fs. I think the lowest score I received on one of these Fs was 10% on the final exam. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. So it wasn't fun (laughs) at all. Um, And so I had a real-life moment there as well of, should I continue with engineering or should I go do something else as well? 
That sounds good. And and even before we go down that route, how, how did you even choose engineering uh, on that path? So was there like an initial interest in it or is it more like, well, it's the typical Asian doctor, lawyer, accountant, engineer, <laughs> and you ended up with that one or was there a different different influence on that side? There was a quite a bit of influence from friends and family as well. I think back then I wanted to go into business school. Okay. I felt that that was a better fit for me, at least my personality. But then with family and friends, a lot of people were leaning towards engineering that mm. they felt that I would be a better fit in engineering school. In fact, there were times where I was reminded that if I were to go into business school, I may not receive the kind of support I would have needed to get through university. So oh, wow. from that okay. it made sense for me to go into engineering. And, and how did you pick like the engineering, the engineering school and things like that? Like what, what was the process there? Given that you were kind of well, uh, heavily suggested, <laughs> I guess, <laughs> to, to get there, if not coerced. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, long story short, I just wanted to stay in, in Calgary. I think okay. at that time I didn't have that. I was fearful of leaving my own home. I was fearful of leaving the comfort of what was so calming around me, my family support, having a car available that I can drive to school, <laughs> friends and family, where all my friends were going to the University of Calgary, or at least many of my close friends were going to University of Calgary. So it didn't make sense for me to think about looking beyond to other schools. And besides, in Calgary at that time, we only had one university. Mm. Luckily for a lot of students these days, there's two universities that they can go to now. Um, but uh, uh, still only one engineering school. Okay. All right. So you made that decision and then you mentioned that uh, you struggled a bit where uh, you, you nearly got kicked out. You were like a 0.03 <laughs> just, yep. just on the border. So, yeah. so on, the, on the nice edge. Um, and, and obviously you, you, you graduated and went through and then ultimately you, you ended up taking a master's. So, so yeah. how does that process go through from someone who nearly failed out to take, continue on with a master's? Yeah, for sure. Well, luckily for me through that moment where I almost got kicked out of school and that I had to repeat a number of those courses again, that's when I, just like what happened before, I had to revisit the model, trying to figure out what worked, what needed to change and what was lacking as well. And I think the thing that was lacking at that time was I was lacking motivation. Mm. What was the game plan? Where was I going to go with all this? And at that time, I was actually seriously contemplating about starting my own business, mm. healthcare, in technology healthcare, actually. Because at that time, the iPhone was just being launched. Android devices were just being launched one or two years after that. We were in a new time where the world was about to change. Mm. And I saw a need in healthcare where we could use these mobile devices to change the world, to change how we took care of our patients. But a lot of people I, were, I was going to for advice and guidance were telling me that no one's going to take me seriously if I didn't have a degree, especially mm. in healthcare. And so I think that was the motivation, that moment where I needed to hear from someone, especially someone credible, that got me realizing that I needed to stay put. I needed the fastest way out. And that fastest way was going to be staying in engineering. With that newfound motivation and revisiting the model and figuring things out, I was able to turn my GPA around from 1.73 to 2.9. And then when I got to my final year of school in fourth year after internship, I was able to bring my, that GPA up to 2.9. I want to start 3.9 out of four. Wow. 
Yeah, so that so luckily that was how I got into graduate school. But something happened in two thousand eight. Okay, we had a crisis, a recession. <laughs> what the Great Recession that happened, and no one was hiring. And rather than try to submit applications and resumes in in local area of just in Toronto, I realized I I mean Calgary is、uh, my local area of Calgary. I realized I needed to broaden that scope of where I was going to find work. And if I was the kind of person who wanted to be more tech oriented, I needed to look at a place that was going to foster that. And so Waterloo made sense for that.、Hmm. And so I made the decision to get out that comfort zone and move over to Waterloo. And don't get me wrong, it wasn't easy. My first twenty four hours in Waterloo, I think I went to McDonald's for lunch, ordered a chicken salad, and as I was eating, I noticed there were. Drips of water falling on it, and those were my tears coming out of my eyes, <laughs> thinking, "Oh my God, what am I doing here? And what am I even going to survive? I don't know anyone here. How am I going to get through all this?" Ah,、uh, that that's、uh, quite quite the story. <laughs> a bit challenging to get through, and、uh, yeah, maybe we'll we'll continue down that path. But,、um, And and say okay, how did you get over that? How did you get over kind of the the, the tears and that motivation and 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 finish on that、uh, that process? I think there were two things. The immediate part was I needed to call home, so I was calling <laughs> home a lot to talk to my mother,、uh, just getting that warm, fuzzy, comfort feel of assurance, knowing I was going to be okay. Okay. So that was the first bit, and it's okay. I think for guys to cry is totally fine. <laughs> And, and I, I, did you did you talk a lot with your mom beforehand, like when you were in Calgary? Not really. This is a total、really. departure from it. Okay, yeah. It was a big departure. In fact, I didn't really talk to my parents a whole lot, even though we were living in the same house. So it just never really occurred to me.、Yeah. And so going to Waterloo, I noticed I was calling home more frequently, getting that help, getting that support, even just hearing their voice helped me out a lot. Cool. And that's something that we often forget for a lot of young people going to somewhere. Going into a new place, even for new people starting a new job, is that sense of that need for comfort sometimes,、mm. and that we all have to be compassionate and helpful for those who are starting a new, being in a new place, and helping them feel more at ease. But in the long run, I think from a long-term perspective, I ended up having to get involved. I needed to build a community, brand new community for myself. Right. I need to get involved with the student life. At Waterloo, and I needed to make new friends as well, and so I think through my classes, I got to know a lot of people who were in similar boat with me, new to Waterloo, didn't have any friends, and I knew who those people were because right outside the classroom, right before you go in for your first day, you could see who kind of knows each other、mm. and who's kind of like alone on their own, and I think through that, I was able to. Meet some some a lot of new friends, and in fact, those are some of my closest friends today here in Toronto.、Um, where if it wasn't for the fact that I approached them and understood what they were going through, I wouldn't have met them, and they would, and they probably would have struggled as well. And I definitely would have struggled. So that's part one of it. I think the part two of getting involved with student life was actually got to know what some of these clubs that were happening in on campus. Even though I was a graduate student. I didn't really care if it was a graduate student or undergrad type of club that I was involved in. I just wanted to get myself distracted. I wanted to、mm. put myself to use for something. And so I found out that there was a 
club on campus that's been disbanded since that was around helping Canadian Asians get to know one another on on campus. And they created this fashion show uh, out of it. And they were talking about how in the previous year, they only they raised this whopping three thousand or four thousand dollars. And in my mind, I was thinking, that's pathetic. That's not a lot of money. Could totally exceed that. And so I wanted to challenge myself with something new and helping these students out with building this whole fundraising effort around this fashion show. And in the end, we end up raising $15,000. Cool. And that club still continues to exist today, despite the fact that this parent club disbanded since. So it sounds good. Sounds <laughs> like a, a good, <clears throat> um, I guess, migration from that, that, uh, that, crying kid in this McDonald's salad <laughs> to, to someone who's now helping support and raise uh, uh, 15k for for um, kind of the, this, this cause and um, I wanted to touch a little bit about on you mentioned that connecting with people the, the classmate you saw us, who was connected to each other and then who were the loners Th- did yeah. you gravitate towards the, the people who already knew each other or did you gravitate towards the no- loners or is it a kind of like a mixed bag of folks that you connected with it's funny you bring that up. I actually gravitate to those who are more alone where, mm-hmm. and you could tell that they were sitting there by themselves, not really talking to anyone else, mm-hmm. but then they didn't look, they didn't strike me as the kind of people where they, they wanted to just be by themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a certain aurora around those type of people. And I just sensed that these people were not that they literally were alone. They didn't know who to approach, where to go, or who to talk to. And I think they were also sensing that there's all these other people around them who knew one another. And they couldn't couldn't just sit in on those conversations. Sounds good. Yeah. So that's a good lesson for folks that if you are starting off as a loner, like loners can band together (laughs) and and then be less lonely and and hopefully become, uh, as you said, kind of uh, the best friends that you have uh, in in Toronto and the geography. Uh, I wanted to go back a little bit. And and I think when we were talking beforehand, uh, you mentioned that uh, you did you did a co-op and I think that was in your undergrad. Yep, I did. Right, and then the co-op that there were some challenges that happened on that. Can you talk a little bit about uh, that co-op and 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 a little bit of those experiences, if you don't mind? Oh yeah, for sure, absolutely. I I think so. This co-op was after the, my second attempt at doing my third year. Okay. Uh, once I got myself out of the rut I was in and getting that two point nine GPA, I was I was able to get a sixteen months co-op position with IBM Canada, where mm-hmm. I was working in two different groups. I worked the first eight months in Calgary with their IT asset management group. And then in the second half, I ended up moving to Vancouver, working in their um, uh, in their uh, software development center that, that was set up out there as well. Okay. And I think at that time, because I had just come out of my rut and I was trying to do a startup going into co-op, I think I had the wrong mindset. I was thinking quite high and mighty at that time. (laughs) Uh, I would dare say that there were times where I probably thought there were some work that I thought I was too good for that. Yeah. And I probably thought that I could do more. I could do something else like project coordination or helping to drive a particular change or getting into development. And so I think that rubbed my 
bosses the wrong shoulder or yeah that rubbed them the wrong shoulders and it gave them the wrong impression of who I was and as a result I kept and to be honest that was actually probably the main reason why I only spent eight months in Calgary and they did another eight months in Vancouver because after six or seven months in the first role I just didn't feel I was a fit to continue and there was no way I could continue 16 months in the same role moving to Vancouver I was I started in testing and like this first role, uh, I thought maybe I can do more. I can be a developer. Funny enough, today I run entire quality engineering practice. So looking back at this time where in when I was a co-op student, thinking I was too good for testing as well. It's quite ironic how things had turned <laughs> out in my career. Um, and so when I was in that role and moving to a development role, I wasn't a very good developer. That's something <laughs> I realized. I sucked pretty bad at it. I could write code. I could write. I could build uh, functionalities. I just didn't feel I was enjoying it at all. I felt this emptiness inside where it just didn't feel like I was contributing the way that I would have wanted to contribute. It's hard to explain that feeling. Mm-hmm. It, you just know that it just doesn't feel right whatever you're doing even though it's something that you wanted to get into uh, the part that made it more challenging was that because I kept moving around and I had this uh, uh, this I was given these bad impressions from my bosses I wasn't getting very good reviews as a result of that and that also mm-hmm. made things very difficult for me to move into different teams who wanted to accept having someone like me. And by the end of it all, um, and in addition to a few other things, I trouble I had caused in Vancouver, I ended up being blacklisted from IBM <laughs> that I was not recommended for hire as a new, uh, if I ever wanted to pursue a career back at IBM as a new grad. And it wasn't until many years later when I was a new grad looking for work again in 2010 and 2011, that that was when I realized or found out that I was blacklisted. Ouch. Yeah. yeah. So I guess the, the, the story there is to uh, be appreciative of the opportunities they have in front of you and, and don't think things are good uh, for too, too good for you. And uh, yeah. I guess if you can prove yourself and, and do an amazing job and, and then move somewhere, it's a much better way than kind of complaining and whining that you're too good for this <laughs> and then yeah. being sent to, to elsewhere. Um, and then potentially even being blacklisted uh, as a result. So yeah, th- thanks for sharing a bit of that story. Maybe we'll do a, a, a deeper dive into some of these things in future episodes, but I want yeah. to, to kind of go back. So, so you've uh, done that you, you recovered and obviously did your master's and 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 you, you've completed your master's and hopefully you have this kind of new lease on on on, on motivation and, and interest yeah. and things like that yeah talk to us about kind of the transition to the workforce uh, off the air you were talking a little bit about uh having done like a lot of the project management stuff your, your CAPM, your pmp very early yeah. uh so what was that transition like from from the master's into the the workforce oh yeah for sure so in 2010 and 2011, the market was still recovering from the recession. A lot of students who were graduating were still struggling to find work. Myself, myself, not an exception to any of that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think through, I was unemployed for about four and a half months looking for work after my graduate studies. And I was concentrating a lot of effort around trying to get into uh, consulting firms like Deloitte. And even, and like I said, I was even applying for IBM and that's how I found out about what happened. <laughs> I'll get to there soon. 
but I was, as I was applying through these places, I was getting final round interviews. In fact, I, Deloitte even flew me down to Toronto for an interview uh, with the new grad program. Unfortunately, I didn't make the list, but through, uh, and then when I was applying for IBM's consulting, this is where it, the rejection of both these places hit me hard. And so the moment that hit me hard was actually through the IBM interview. Mm. I was getting through all the rounds of interviews. I had completed three or four rounds. And when I got to the final bid, the associate partner responsible for consulting in Calgary called me up and asked me for coffee. We met up and that's when she revealed to me about what had happened earlier when I was on my club. Gotcha. And to her, her biggest risk was, can this guy, um, can I leave this guy working on a client project and can he gracefully exit? Obviously, the work that I had done earlier at IBM showed that I couldn't. Hmm. And so it came back to haunt me as a result of that. And so obviously I didn't get the job with IBM. And I, and at that point, that's when I realized that the thing about consulting is there's a seizing of when they hire new grads. And I had just missed it. This is now January, 2011. This was probably the very last opportunity to try to get any consulting gig for at least another year. What was I going to do? I wasn't sure. And so I had to dig deep at hobbies things I was doing, things I enjoy, and just, and even things I wasn't sure I wanted to do and see, maybe broaden, uh, take a look at applying for these type of jobs. And so um, a few days after that discussion with that partner from IBM, I applied for a company called General Dynamics in Calgary. It's a military contractor. And sure enough, a few weeks later, I got in call for an interview and I came in and I was, and then I was interviewed by three other managers to see where would I be a fit. And it was determined that through my experience that I would be a fit for testing. (laughs) (laughs) Funny enough, I had, I thought I was too good for testing uh, many years earlier. And now there was an opportunity in front of me to try testing again as a new grad. And I'm not going to lie. I actually used that whole 24 or 48 hours to decide whether I wanted to do this, whether I was, and I think there was still a little bit of that feeling in my stomach that says, maybe I, maybe this isn't the right fit. The salary isn't right. It feels low. I wanted to do these things for consulting. I wanted to work with clients. I wanted to, uh, this, uh, this, I wouldn't get any of that exposure, Mm -hmm. but at the same time, I think that because I had nothing, I had no other offers. It didn't make sense for me to say no to it. And besides, I thought maybe I could keep looking um, once I started. And so I just, and through that decision process, I decided to take this job. And I'm not going to lie, looking, looking back, probably one of the best decisions I've made for my entire career, because a lot of the experiences I gathered, I gathered from that job still applies to what I do today. 
And, and talk to us a little bit about that journey from uh, General Dynamics to, to where you are now, because obviously there's a couple more roles in between. Um, so a lot of learned experiences as well. Hopefully no more blacklists or no more uh, like getting kicked out and stuff like that. And, and it's on the upward trajectory. But, but talk us through a little bit about kind of that, that trajectory. Yeah, for sure. Well, it wasn't a smooth journey between General <laughs> Dynamics to where I am today. Um, I still managed to get into a few more trouble in between. Oh, no. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah. So even in my first few months at General Dy Dynamics, I was on probation and I almost failed my probation because I was struggling to write the kind of test cases that my bosses were expecting me to write. And so I had to move to a different team. Luckily from that, uh, that other team found strength in something else I was good at and able to capitalize on that. Mm -hmm. And so... I was finally able to grow more naturally in my career at General Dynamics after that point. But I still had this feeling that I wanted to be more involved with dealing with clients. I wanted to do more project management. I wanted, I, through conversations and just discussions and just knowing myself, I was the kind of person who wanted to deal with people. I didn't see myself as the kind of person who would sit in front of a computer and just test all day or write code to test something all day. I saw myself as someone that would coordinate with different types of people and uh, get involved to help move things along through that effort. And so through because of that, uh, in my off hours, I spent time volunteering. This time I was volunteering for political campaigns, helping with two campaigns for both for the federal and provincial uh, elections. Unfortunately, my candidates didn't win, but that was those were some of the experiences that I was able to use towards my PMP. And even some of the work I was doing counted towards the PMP as well. So once I received my PMP, I thought maybe there would be an opportunity within general dynamics to get into project management. Unfortunately, there was no opening for it and they were looking for much more seasoned people to do it. And so I started looking around. I found a startup that was looking for a project manager who can help uh, guide and build their uh, uh, loyalty product or their um, employee appreciation product. And so I applied, I got the job, I, and then I left. Then I arrived only to realize I knew nothing and all the things I learned and all the things I knew about leading people just went out the window. <laughs> and it, and it was at that moment where I realized managing stakeholders is a very, very difficult thing. I had to manage my boss, who was the co-CEO, and he just he was expecting that I would be more on the ball, being more strict about managing the type of work that needed to get done and be able to push back on the dev team. But the dev team kept pushing back on me saying, well, it doesn't make sense for us to do this. It doesn't make sense for us to do this yet. It doesn't make sense for us to do this. We should do this, this, and this. And those priorities were contradictory to my boss. And so I was stuck in the middle and I didn't have the tools or the means to do anything about it. I'd never been in that situation before. Hmm. And so eight months in, I had to sit down with my boss and he told me that had if I do not find a new thing for me to work on at that company, he was going to have to let me go. And so just like my previous experiences where I kept running into a wall, I was now back in a position where I had to figure something out and to figure out what I was going to do. And that thing that I figured out was I realized I needed to deliver value. 
Mm. And there were, the, the value that wasn't being delivered here was analytics. No one had any idea what was going on. No one knew if a new feature was going to provide any value for our customers. And so I started digging to the details of things, our databases, pulling data in things that no one else was pulling. And then working with people I knew in other parts of the startup that had access to financials and piecing all that data together to have a good sense of knowing how were we doing as a business, what was working, what were customers were using, and what was delivering immediate value for the business. And so that got me going for a while, but I think there were other challenges that were beyond my control that put me in a position where they had to let me go mm -hmm. after 12 months. And then you ultimately recovered from that yeah. and then had another jump in, until your current position or what, what was that, that transition? Yeah. <laughs> more jumps. I ended up moving to Edmonton for a contract role again, as a project manager there only to realize I was stuck dealing with situations that were in where I was in the middle between different parties and stakeholders and I couldn't move it, move them. They were very powerful forces that were just wasn't working in my favor and after four and a half months, I too got let go from that role. Mm. Um, and that's when I realized what I was, what I thought I would be good at was indeed wasn't something I was fit for yet. Uh, I still have 20 years ahead of my career, 28 years ahead of my career. So anything <laughs> could still happen. Maybe I might be a great project manager in the future. But at that moment, at that time, it didn't feel I had the right tools, the right knowledge, despite all the training and the certifications and classes I had taken and the guidance and mentorship I got, I just wasn't, it just, I wasn't ready for it. Hmm. Luckily, I had a break. In 2016, I got to know some people at Deloitte who were running the Agile practice in Toronto, and they were just starting up a new practice of it in Calgary. And through that, I was able to get my foot in the door to Deloitte. And through that experience, that's where I went to go work at TD as a client. Sounds good. And so it seems so, like, the, <laughs> yeah. So it seems like it's it's the the power of networking and building relationships uh, can definitely help with with those breaks. Where uh, sometimes uh, what I took from that is is you have these preconceived notions of what you're good at, and and sometimes yeah. it comes to fruition, and oftentimes it doesn't. So it's yeah. being able to recognize that, have the self awareness to continue on, and then uh, if once you have that, then sometimes like the universe gives you uh, a few breaks, <laughs> and maybe get back into slightly different versions of that, and then end up to kind of areas of success later on. So uh, yeah, thanks for sharing your story, and I'm sure we'll deep dive into uh, a certain one of those areas in, in future episodes. But I'd love if you shared maybe a, a, a tip or two of your swike, the stuff I wish I knew earlier throughout that. I know you already shared a bunch of that in there, but are there any like one or two that you would uh, want to impart to any young professionals out there? Of course. I think through all those stories I've shared, I think one of the key things is try anything. Hmm. We never know whether we're truly good at something or not until we try something. Taking that first opportunity is key. And by taking that first opportunity and trying something, building that trust of the work you do for the people around you, it's going to create a lot of open doors for you. Mm -hmm. So that's the first tip I would give to people. I think right now in the market we, we have, we see a lot of really cool things. We see AI, we see machine learning, 
we talk about uh, analytics, we talk about soft uh, platform development, startups, all these things. But then there's a lot of areas that are not quite as sexy, like where I'm in, quality engineer, where it has a huge impact in everything we do, even the, our day-to-day -day lives. And so teams like mine are hungry for people. Mm. And there's going to be a lot of great opportunities for that. So as long as people have their eyes open to trying new things, anything really, it's going to help them build their careers into where they may want to be and where they may be good at too. Sounds good. So it sounds like that uh, young Bruce who thought he was too good for certain things has kind of seen the light <laughs> and realized, yeah. you know what, uh, there are kind of the, the the sexy fads out there that that may or may not turn into something. And then there's the kind of things that, you know what, uh, this can help me and, and set me up for success uh, later on if I approach it in, with the right attitude and, and the mentality as well. So I, yep. I think that's that's great. And uh, yeah, if folks want to connect with you uh, and, and get some information, uh, can they do that on LinkedIn? And then what are some of the future aspirations that, that we can expect for you in the coming uh, months, years, and decades? <laughs> of course. So I, my personal ambition and my aspirations right now is I want to focus on building talent. Mm -hmm. um, I Like I mentioned earlier, I brought this team from 7 to 30, and we are going to about 40 by the end of the year. So quite a large accomplishment of hiring so many people. But Something that I didn't mention earlier is 60% of my team are of people with less than two years of experience, hmm. new grads, people who've tried different things, wasn't quite sure what they wanted to do, and now trying something here. And through our interview process, we were looking for those type of people where uh, they had the curiosity to learn and that they were open to sharing uh, failures similar like mine's uh, with us and we're helping them carry them through their journeys right now. And we're helping to teach them things around end-to-end -end testing, engaging with our partners, building relationships. These are things that <clears throat> I want to continue to spend more and more time on to build the careers of these individuals. And I, I hope many of them will leave me one day and they're going to take the lessons that they've learned from me and the stories that you're seeing here on this call uh, to be able to help help other teams, other aspiring people, and maybe even run into another young Bruce like myself and be able to help <laughs> know what to do to manage that person and be able to bring them up in an effective way. Sounds good. So yeah, hopefully we'll be able to see that uh, growth in, in, in the team and uh, we'll be able to dive into some of those other lessons learned uh, from, from talent and curiosity for, for new grads and young professionals. And uh, thanks so much, Bruce, for sharing your story. And uh, hopefully you'll, you'll come back for a future episode. For sure. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Bruce. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on the Swike Stuff I Wish I Knew Earlier, the podcast. If you like the podcast, please subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you found this podcast. And if you can give us a review, that would be very appreciated. Feel free to contact me on LinkedIn at Luki Danu, L-U-K-I-D-A-N-U, and the same on most social media platforms. And I look forward to hearing from you. Thanks. Bye.